This sermon was preached by Caleb Bunch, head pastor and church planner of Redeeming Grace Fellowship in Massapequa, New York. Redeeming Grace was planted in 2015 and is seeking to reach central Nassau County with the gospel. You can find sermons from this series and many others at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to distribute this sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35 this morning. Today we're going to close out this very, very important chapter that we've been going through uh, in Mark chapter 4. The passage that we're going to read today transitions us out of Jesus' teaching through parables and into Jesus' teaching us through miracles. We have just completed the five parables that are here in Mark chapter 4, and we are going to see over today and the following weeks four incredible miracles. Please follow along as I read, starting in Mark chapter 4, verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Today we are going to consider four points from this text. And along with these points, we'll have some uh, application to ourselves that will be interwoven with them. Our points today will be first, Jesus' humanity. Second, Jesus' deity. Third, trust. And finally, fear. Join me once again as we go before the Lord and pray that he will work through his word this morning. Father, I pray that right now we would turn our eyes upon Jesus. Help us, Lord, to look full in his wonderful face. Lord, as you say, there is light for a look at the Savior. Lord, I pray, uh, just as this song says, Lord, that you would enlighten us as we uh, deeply look into your word. Lord, by your spirit, open our eyes. Give us clarity today. Lord, if there are any in this room that are saved, that are lackluster in their love of you, Father, please reignite that passion for Jesus Christ. If there are any in this room who have not yet been saved, open their eyes to the goodness of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Point number one, Jesus' humanity. One of the often overlooked realities, and I believe one of the most precious realities about Jesus is that he was fully God and fully man. This is known as the hypostatic union in theology. We have a very real aspect of Jesus' humanity glaring off the page at us this morning. Jesus was tired. Jesus was exhausted. This has been a long day of ministry for Jesus. Ministry is hard. Ministry is challenging. And I'm not saying that because that's what I do. I'm saying that because we see that not only in 
pastors and people who serve in the church, we see that in Jesus. Jesus is tired. And not only ministry is tiring, life is tiring. It is exhausting. Let's look back just a little bit and see what has gone on in this one day that Jesus has experienced. Please turn back just a little bit in your Bibles, probably one or two pages, to Mark chapter 3, verse 22. We're just going to quickly skim through this to see what Jesus had experienced on this day. In the morning, the Pharisees came from Jerusalem and accused Jesus of being possessed by Beelzebul. Of course, we know that Jesus defends himself well during that time. And then he goes into this house during the heat of the day. That's what often would happen during the very hot hours. They would go inside and they would wait for the sun to pass just a little bit farther down in the sky and it will cool off. And during that time... In the heat of the day, his family approaches and they try to get Jesus to quit ministering and to come home. That event occurs starting in verse 31. Then, as we step into chapter 4, Jesus goes back outside in the afternoon and he began to teach people beside the sea. Great crowds so that he had to get into a boat and go away from the shoreline so that he could speak to them without being too crowded. In Mark 4.34, it shows us that Jesus spent time before crossing over to the other side explaining the parables that he has just preached. He explains them to the disciples. This perhaps was done over the evening meal as they were waiting to get into the boat. Perhaps they were eating a meal of dried fish or cooking a fish and consuming it before getting into the boats once again to travel across to the other side. Now we get to our text today. It's getting late. The sun is probably setting. The disciples load into a couple of boats and they travel across to the other side. They want to go there because they know there are no crowds there. They can have a good night's sleep without uh, any concern about being uh, surrounded by people in the early morning. Jesus is tired. He doesn't want to wait to get to the other side before he goes to sleep. He just curls up on the cushion in the boat and he falls asleep. One of the most precious truths that we have about Jesus that we must not forget is that he humbled himself to be made like us. As the song says, clothed in frail humanity. This Jesus has been existing for all eternity without ever needing to eat in order to be sustained. But as we see, Jesus is tempted by the devil in Luke chapter 4 and in Matthew chapter 4, and it says that as he was fasting, he was hungry. We also see that in heaven, Jesus never needed the comfort or cool or sustaining life of water in his body. But on the cross, Jesus displays his humanity when he breathes out the words, I thirst. Jesus was fully man. Our need for sleep is a constant reminder that we are finite, that we are not like God, that our power is quite limited and frail. Consider the amazing statement that's being made by the psalmist in Psalm 121, verse 4. He says, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither sleep nor slumber. God does not need to rest. He doesn't need to slow down. He doesn't lose energy. He is eternally powerful. Yet Jesus humbled himself and set aside his eternal endurance to experience our human weaknesses. That is amazing. That shows us great love. In Philippians 2, Paul uses this reality to remind Christians that we are called to be humble. We are to put others first. We could never humble ourselves to the extent that Jesus humbled himself. And we are to follow his example in humbling ourselves. We are to consider the needs of others 
more significant than our own. This sleeping Jesus, who had been rocked to sleep by the waves, teaches us that God was willing to go so much farther than we could imagine to save us. He was willing to take upon himself our weaknesses. Observing the reality of God made flesh, or as the author Joshua Harris puts it, God with a belly button, this should result in awe. This should result in us. It's such an amazing awe because we see that God loved the world so much that he sent Jesus to lay down his rights, to lay down his own dignity for us. Let's move forward now into point number two, Jesus' divinity. Now, for the disciples, Jesus' humanity was obvious. For these guys, they traveled with Jesus. They knew that he was a man. He ate with them. He drank water out of the same pitcher as them. He slept near them in their encampments or in their homes. They understood that Jesus needed to eat and drink and sleep just like them. You wouldn't have to convince them Jesus was fully man. But this is where the disciples get confused. They don't see the fullness of Jesus' divinity, at least not yet. In Jewish literature and in in Jewish poetry, and even we see this extensively in the Bible, the sea represents dread. It represents fear. It represents uncertainty. It represents violence. We could spend the rest of the day tracing the Jewish view of the sea throughout the Bible. The Jews were a culture that were not sea-fearing people. They never had a standing navy When Jonah decided to flee, instead of going to Nineveh, where God told him to go, he decides to flee to Tarshish. Tarshish is probably near Spain, in Spain or around it. He wants to go as far the opposite direction as he can get. But there's a reason he had to go to a pagan sailor. Remember, he doesn't really like the pagans. He doesn't want to go to Nineveh, but he goes to these pagan sailors. Why did he have to do that? If Jonah was going to be consistent, he would want to go to a Jewish sailor. Well, the reason is... There's no evidence that the Jewish people ever sailed that far. They didn't travel that far in boats. That wasn't their desire. They usually looked at the sea with great fear and dread. In Job, the sea is paralleled with the great Leviathan as the representation of evil, and perhaps even representing the devil himself. Yet in Job 38, God defends his own greatness by asking Job this question, the series of questions, actually. He says, who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out of its womb when i made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it who set bars and doors and said this far you shall come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed god is saying you think the sea is powerful you think the sea is dangerous? You have no clue, Job. I'm the one who is the boss of this little sea that you're looking at. In Revelation, there's a reason that the sea is described as being like glass. It indicates that the danger is gone. There's no need to fear. There's no need to be afraid of the sea when it's calm. This sea is like glass. There is no more danger or violence or dread to be had in heaven. I remember the first time that I saw the sea for what it really is. It was in February of 2009. I was on a short-term mission trip with North Shore Baptist Church in Jamaica. And one day we had some time to go to the ocean. So several of us went out to these rocks that were out by the ocean. Now these rocks were not at the sea level. They were, they were elevated about 10 to, to 12 feet in some cases. And the shorter ones were still eight feet above the water. 
Well, several of us went out to the edge of these rocks, and we loved it. We loved to see these waves come down and crash up against the rock and just spray us just a little bit. But then, as we looked out into the sea, we saw one large wave. And, of course, we thought, just like all the others, eventually it would turn over and it would crash. But it never did. It continued to grow and grow and grow until not only was it as high as the rock, it was higher than our heads. And it crashed into us. So as it came, I braced myself thinking I can hold myself against this wave. And I found myself underwater, as it were, flipping over backwards, leaving the rock that I was standing on and landing on my back on the rock behind me. As our entire group began to collect themselves and stand up and take inventory of all the scrapes and bruises and cuts that we had on our arms and hands and legs, we began to hear screaming and we looked in between the rocks that there were and we saw a young girl, I think she was nine at the time, had fallen between the two rocks and she was down holding herself wedged between them about to fall in and as I peered in to try to reach down and grab her hand, I saw the waves below her. I saw the sea for what it was. It wanted to drink her in. It wanted to crush her against those rocks. It wanted to destroy her. It has no regard for human life. The sea is dread. The sea is violence. The sea is power. At least four, and as many as seven of these disciples were fishermen. They understood the sea. They knew its strength. They had been for their lives training to go out on this sea in boats. And when they wake Jesus up, they ask him, do you not care that we are perishing? Do you realize that these men knew the limits of a boat? They knew when they said that we are perishing. This is not hyperbole. They are not exaggerating. This is real danger. Each of these disciples have discerned the reality that this might be their grave. They are looking out at the water and their life is flashing before their eyes and they say they are perishing. Water is already coming into the boat. Each time a wave makes its way into the hole, it lowers the boat a little bit deeper into the water, allowing even shorter waves to come in until there's no stopping it. They know that if the boat fills with water, they are going to die. They know that if the boat tips over, they are going to die. What they don't know is that the one who made that sea, the one who made the wind, the one who made the waves, is the one sitting in the boat. They don't understand who he is. And so Jesus arises and says, Peace, be still, and it stops. I can't even say that to a house cat and get a response. Jesus speaks to something far more moody and aggressive and dangerous than a house cat. He speaks to the sea itself. He looks into the most terrifying of earthly dangers and basically says, shut up, and it does. The word peace that is used here is closer to the word hush. We see it come from the same root where in chapter 1 of Mark, Jesus would look at the demons and he would say, be silent. That's the same word that's being used here. Peace means hush, means shh. Psalm 89 verse 9 says, speaking of Yahweh, you rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Who is in this boat? Notice when Jesus tells the sea what to do, it immediately stops. It doesn't casually die down like a normal storm would. No, just as the wind and the water could not resist the words of Jesus Christ when he called them forth into existence, even so they could not resist his command to be calm. You see the disciples saying to one another, Who then is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him. They would eventually fully embrace the answer to that question. This is God. 
God is standing here in front of us. Just as we heard in our Old Testament, our New Testament reading from Colossians chapter 1, that in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus is fully God. Now let's move over a little bit into point number three, trust. Look again at verse 38 for a moment. It says, the disciples ask him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? I want you to notice two things about this question that the disciples asked. There are two underlying statements being made through this question. And um, one of them is this. It seems as though their question is a veiled accusation. By asking Jesus if he cares for them, they are calling into question his love. Do you see that? Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? He's calling into question their love. Do you really just not care that much that you're willing to just lay down and sleep? If we made it into a statement, it would sound something like this. Jesus, if you really did care about us, you wouldn't be letting this happen right now. Secondly, we see this question seems to indicate that they expect Jesus to do something about this situation. They expect him to do something. By saying, do you not care that we are perishing? It seems as though the disciples are saying, if we made this into a statement, Jesus, wake up. Just do something. Isn't it interesting that those are the same two responses and accusations that usually arise from us when we begin to encounter a trial of some kind? Isn't it interesting that when things get hard in our lives, our response toward God is either or maybe both. God, it seems like you don't care about me. Or God, if you love me, then why don't you do something? This should teach us at least two things about Christ. First, we should trust Jesus' plan. In reading this text, I want you to notice something. Jesus was not surprised by the storm at all. Jesus upholds the universe by the words of his power. This is no surprise to Jesus. Now think about it. Give a closer look to verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, who is he? Jesus said to them, let us go across to the other side. Do you think that Jesus was unaware of what was going on here? Jesus said, let's go to the other side. Jesus made this wind. He made this water. He knows what's coming. Whose idea was it to travel? It was Jesus who called the shots. This was Jesus' plan. He led them into the storm. It can be really easiest for us to worry and to fear and to fail to trust God when we forget that God is in control. Trials are coming. Storms are coming. You might be living in a storm right now in your life, but these storms are not designed to make you doubt God. These storms are designed to strengthen you and to help you see God for who he really is. Consider this anonymous poem that I think clearly Uh, states what i'm hoping to express to you this morning he says when god wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man to play the noblest part when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed watch his methods watch his ways how he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects how he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay, which only God understands, while his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands. How he bends but never breaks, 
when his good God undertakes, how God uses whom he chooses, and with every purpose fuses him, by every act induced him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. Now, I know that that's a lot of poetry really fast. We don't usually use poetry, but let me just give you what he's saying in a nutshell. God knows what he's doing when he's working in your life. When trials come, God knows what he's doing. A.W. Tozer, the theologian, puts it this way. He says, to the child of God, there is no such thing as an accident. He travels in a pointed way. Accidents may appear to befall him and misfortune stalk his way, but these evils will be so in appearance only and will seem evils only because we cannot read the script of God's hidden providence. As James 1 teaches us, these trials exist so that they will produce perseverance and so that eventually, and I quote, that you may be made perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. These trials are designed to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ himself. Please understand, this sermon today is not about Jesus calming all the storms in your life. That is the Justin Bieber of interpretations. It is plays well to the masses. It is all bark and no bite. It is all flash and no substance. There is nothing to that interpretation of what is going on here. This is not a promise that Jesus is going to calm all of the storms in your life. Jesus can. He could calm any storm in your life. He could stop any trial, but he might not. God is working in your life for his own purposes. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are a great example. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, Look, King, our God is able to save us from the fiery furnace, but even if he does not, we're still not going to bow down to your statue. Now, in their instance, God did deliver him. But let's flash forward to the New Testament, and we see Stephen, the first martyr. He stands before this trial, as it were, this mock trial of these Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, and they are enraged at the sermon that he preaches to them. They drag him out of the city and they throw him in a pit and they begin to throw rocks at him until he dies. Now, Stephen surely knew God can deliver me. But God did deliver him. Just not in the way that we might expect. For the moment that he closed his eyes in death. He, he woke in glory. And so as we are looking at God's plan and we are, we are looking at our circumstances, sometimes we have no concept of what God is doing behind the scenes. Occasionally, God will allow us to see the providential inner workings of how things are going uh, together. But most of the time, we don't see that. The most, most of these people in this boat with Jesus will die they're going to be executed because they believe in Jesus, because they believe he's God. Now, God calmed this trial. He calmed this storm. He said to the sea, be still, and it was. But he allowed them to experience other storms in their life. The, be- the message here is not that Jesus will calm every storm. Rather, it is that every storm that a Christian experiences should make them more aware of the love and goodness and power of Jesus. So we see now, that Jesus is trustworthy because of his plan. But also notice that Jesus is trustworthy because of his power. I find it incredibly interesting that the disciples wake Jesus from his nap because they want him to do something, right? They, they want him to get up. Why else would they wake him up? They want him to do something, but then when he does something, they are completely dumbfounded. They are shocked. 
They probably expected Jesus to pick up a bucket and start bailing or to grab a rope and help tie the sail. They don't expect Jesus to make the storm evaporate. Our prayer lives can be made so much stronger if we see some of what's going on here. Sometimes we fail to go to God in prayer because we doubt that he's going to do anything. Or if he's going to do something, we we think he's only going to do something minor to change the situation. Of course, we would never say these things out loud. I don't think anyone here would say, well, I don't pray about this because God's not going to do anything. Of course, we wouldn't say that. But the way that we live our lives in a regular uh, activity of prayerlessness, it shows that we really don't trust in God through prayer. Sometimes we fail to see God to work in a situation because we deem the situation too small, even to consider it something that is important enough to have prayer. I have a headache. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take an aspirin. Did you pray about that? My spouse and I are arguing, so I'm just going to go take a walk and I'm going to cool off. Did you even bother to pray about that? We could go on and on and on and list all the scenarios of our lives. Let me help you here by repeating something that a wise pastor once told me. He said, if you can be faithful to trust Christ through prayer in the little stuff, when the hard things come along, you're going to be ready to, to do the right thing. You're going to go right to your knees in prayer because you're used to it. I think it's important for us to see here the disciples are amazed at Jesus' display of power because they failed to realize who they are asking for help. They failed to recognize that he has power to actually change things. They wanted him to bail them out by grabbing a bucket. God can go far beyond that. Sometimes we pray fatalistically. Sometimes we pray and ask God to work in a situation, but we don't believe God is actually going to do anything. James calls this kind of person in James chapter 1 a double-minded man. The disciples expected something, but they were amazed at the extreme nature of the response. God always answers prayers. Every time he answers prayers, but he, he answers them in the way that is best for his people. Not the thing that we think is best, but what he knows is best. You're probably already quoting to yourself in your mind Romans 8, 28. For he makes all things work together for the good of those who are the called according to his purpose. God has the power to answer your prayers in ways far beyond what you're asking. So pray. As the scripture says, pray fervently. Pray without ceasing. Pray knowing that all power and authority belong to him but also pray with the desire for his will to be done, not your will. Now, we saw here that we can trust in Christ because of his predestined plan, and we can trust in Christ because of his power. If we trust him, we're going to pray. Let's move on now to our final point, which is fear. It's really interesting to me to trace the thread of fear throughout this story. When the boats depart on the Sea of Galilee, it seems as though the weather is nice. There's nothing to be afraid of. These guys are sailors. They would have thought, you know, if they looked out and and the sea was a little bit choppy, maybe we should just wait here for the night. But no, it seems like everything is smooth sailing. But the Sea of Galilee is positioned right next to these large hills known as the Golan Heights. And oftentimes the wind will come up over them and sweep across the lake. And it will bring storms in at a rapid pace. And that's what occurs here. In verse 37, the storms come, and with the storm comes fear. The disciples wake up Jesus, and they ask him if he cares that they are perishing. In that question, you see fear. They're afraid they're going to die. After calming the storm, Jesus asks them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? 
Why are you afraid? That's a, that's a funny question. I thought I was going to die. And we could look at that and we could say, if I was in that boat, I would be more afraid than they would be. I would be terrified. And Jesus asks, why are you afraid? But Jesus is asking this as a legitimate question because he says, have you no faith? You may notice that no one answers him. They just stand there. They're not going to answer that question. Why am I afraid? Maybe it has something to do with the fact that I just about died. Maybe I was afraid because of the situation that was surrounding me that seemed like it was legitimate for me to be afraid. But I want you to see something else that's important here. After the fear of the sea is gone, the disciples are still afraid. Verse 41 says, And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They were scared of the waves. They were scared of this sea of Galilee. But now it says that they are literally filled to the brim with fear. That's an incredible thing to see. What they just realized is that there is something inside the boat that should be feared more than what is outside the boat. What is here is much more terrifying than is what is out there. We are afraid of this great power. We are a great, afraid of this great strength. But as we look, there is something inside this boat that is far more powerful than anything that is outside of it. We thought the sea was strong, but Jesus just shut it down with a few syllables. The disciples are beginning to see just how powerful this God-man Jesus Christ is. Today what I would like to do is close our sermon by focus on, focus, focusing in on the reality that fear is actually not always bad. We just tend to fear the wrong things. The Bible teaches us to fear the Lord. People often try to soften that down by saying that fear means to respect him or honor him, and that's in part true. It involves that. But ultimately the word still does mean fear. And when sinful people encounter God in the Bible, they are swept up into complete awe and terror of him. We see this played out all throughout the scripture. Let me give you just a few quick examples. First, Abraham, when he encounters God in Genesis chapter 18, he says to God, Lord, I am but dust and ashes. He looks at himself in comparison to God and says, I'm just a person made up of dirt. You are God. Isaiah declares in Isaiah chapter 6, when he sees the fullness of the glory of God in the throne room of heaven, he says, Woe is me, I am undone. Ezekiel, when he encounters God, he falls down on his face. When Peter realizes that Jesus is God, in Luke chapter 5 verse 8, he says to him, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. On the road to Damascus, when Paul encounters Jesus for the first time, he falls on his face before Christ off of his mount in revelation one john falls down like a dead man before christ this is just a sampling when sinful man encounters holy god there is a response of terror and fear kneeling down falling down laying in the dirt on your face these are all universal signs of surrender and submission there is a sense in which if you really know who god is you will be in awe of him. I would like to close today with two applications, one for a believer and one for a non-believer. Christians, we'll start with you, with us. 
in C.S. Lewis's children's series, known as the Chronicles of Narnia, it, it contains these talking animals. And there's a lion figure, which represents Christ, who is named Aslan. And when Aslan is first being described to the characters that are the main protagonists, the Pevensey children, we read the following dialogue. Is, uh, is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I should feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can stand before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. And here's what I want you to hear. This, I think, is a great literature uh, representation of who Christ is. He said, safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. We can, if we're not vigilant, find ourselves thinking that God is safe. Getting too comfortable. We can think that he's just some forgetful, forgiving grandfather figure who laughs off our sin because he just loves us so much. When we view God properly, his power, his might, his authority, his majesty, his beauty, it should cause us to respond like the disciples respond here in the boat. We should be in awe of him, in total fear of him. We should recognize the true power that is in that boat. The true power is in Jesus Christ. I was in awe and filled with fear when I saw the massive wave in Jamaica. The power of God is infinitely greater than that little wave that crashed over me. If we are in Christ, we must balance the reality of John, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, verse 9, which says, If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Of course that is true. But we must also balance that with Hebrews 4.13, which says nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Sometimes we just get too familiar with God and we forget who he really is. Paul says in Romans chapter 6 verse 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue on in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? The obvious rhetorical answer is we can't. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fall down before him. Repent of sin that is in your life. Recognize that he is worthy of your life. He is worthy of your praise. He is worthy of obedience. In many ways, the opposite of fear here is familiarity. The disciples felt familiar with Jesus. They had gotten used to the fact that he can cast out demons. They had gotten used to the fact that he could preach with authority. They had gotten used to the fact that he could even heal lepers. But they were not used to the fact that he could overcome the greatest power that they had ever encountered previously. They had become too familiar with their limited perspective of God. The theologian B.B. Warfield used to urge his theological students not to grow weary of God. And what he means by that is don't get bored with God. 
You can become so familiar with the scripture and with sermons that you forget just how amazing he really is. That we look at a caricature rather than the real Jesus. I think that many Christians have just gotten used to God. We've gotten weary of him. We're just like the disciples and we've gotten used to having him with us. We're along for the ride, but we've forgotten to look at him and see who he is. Have you lost your awe? Perhaps it's been a a very long time since you peered intently at Jesus Christ to examine him for who he really is. Don't wait for a storm to shake up your life to do this. Fear the Lord, whether you're in a trial or not. Not merely because he's big, not merely because he's stronger than you, not merely because he made you, not because might makes right, but because he bought you with his blood. If you are in Christ, he saved you from yourself and from your sin and from your eternal punishment. Fear the Lord and live for him. And Christian, here's some more good news. If you're in Christ, there's nothing else to be afraid of. Nothing else to fear. If God is for you, Who can be against you? What can separate you from his love? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Paul is writing this because these are all things that either he or the early church was currently experiencing. And he's saying, do you think this little stuff can cause us to be taken out of the love of God? No, it cannot. There is nothing else to be afraid of. Consider Jesus' words in Luke chapter 12. He says, I tell you, my friends... Do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, they have nothing more that they can do. (laughs) But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you to fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. Do not be afraid. You have no reason to fear if you are in Christ. All these people can do is hurt your body. That's it. They can take your stuff. Big deal. You can say with the psalmist, what can man do to me? I mean, really, what can you do to me? Be strong and courageous, knowing that the Lord your God is with you. Now, to those who are here that do not know Christ as your Savior... I want to close with this application. There's a lot for you to fear. There's a lot out there to fear. Let's just ask the question, what if, what if you were to make your life as safe as possible? What if you could protect for the rest of your life every part of your body from sickness? You would never be sick again. What if you could protect yourself from car crashes and from financial hardship and from social awkwardness and from loneliness and from ignorance? What if you could protect yourself from all of this stuff that people fear? Well, guess what? You're going to die someday. Fear of all this stuff is is pointless. This stuff has no value ultimately. Someday you're going to die. Everyone does. And all that safety that you've set up for yourself is going to fall and crash and burn. Consider the words of Mark chapter 8, verse 35 and 36. Jesus says, for whoever would save his life. That's what people who don't believe in Jesus Christ are trying to do. Trying to save your life with all these artificial things whoever tries to save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom
believe in Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. You might experience hardship. I'm not going to promise you wealth or health or any of these other good things that you would consider now as safety. But there is a promise of safety in Jesus Christ that after this life ends, there is an eternity of life with him. If you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ, I want you to know that he came to die for sinners like you and me, undeserving people. And he rose on the third day. If you want to know more about being saved, please don't leave this place without talking to me or anyone you've seen up on stage today. We want to tell you more about what it means to know Jesus Christ in a saving way. So let's recap. Today our text, this incredibly short but rich text, has showed us that Jesus Christ is fully man. It taught us theology as it showed us also that Jesus is fully God, that he is both 100% man and 100% God. We also saw that Jesus Christ is trustworthy. And even when we look around at, at our circumstances and feel like there is nothing to hold on to, he says, I am trustworthy. And finally, we saw that he is to be feared. Let's have an awe of our King Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, I I am, even in preaching this this morning, once again amazed. Lord, help us to look intently at Jesus Christ. Turn our eyes. Please, Lord, turn our eyes upon him. Let us look full in his wonderful face and see who he really is. See him for his greatness. Lord, I know that in this life, we will never fully understand your power. But Lord, I pray that you would give us more awe of you pull back that curtain just a little bit more so that we might have a renewed sense of awe at who you are. Lord, let us, as we come to your word, let our jaws continually drop on the floor just like the disciples and say, who is this? You continue to amaze me. Father, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, I pray that right now you would be working in their heart, drawing them to yourself. Lord, I pray that there would be a fear of you a fear of your great power, a fear of your great strength. But more importantly than that, Lord, I pray that there would be a recognition that they before you are unworthy, but you've sent your son to die for unworthy sinners. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn more about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org.